Unbound Theatre presents The Chronicles of Professor Chronomier, The Tudor Assassin. Written by Dario Knight and performed by Erica Sanderson. Prologue 19th of February, 1873. A pale, icy mist hung across Atwell Street as though the web of a crystal spider had been woven from door to door to mark another cold winter's night. The crisp evening air diffused the distant echoes of hooves and wooden wheels traversing the uneven roads, the ever-present rattle of the great city of London. Although no carriages or horseshoes disturbed the trail of frost forming between its cobblestones, Atwell Street was far from idle. In the middle of the row of narrow but towering terraced houses was the weather-beaten door of number 26. Once a vibrant green, the door's paint had faded to reveal the bare wood beneath. The house's windows, untroubled by soap and water, were adorned with carefully cultivated window boxes. Even in the biting London winter, each was filled with an array of hardy, if peculiar, plants, whose exotic leaves began to tremble as the curious activity taking place inside the house unfolded. A vivid, flashing green light erupted through the basement windows just visible below street level, illuminating the mist outside. Loud and jagged scratches, clatters, fizzles and scrapes rang out into the street. Together, the eerie lights and sounds foretold that something truly extraordinary was about to happen. Many residents of Atwell Street refused to acknowledge Number 26 with its garish floral adornments. The erratic noises it periodically spilled into polite society were deemed vulgar and antisocial by the neighbouring households, whose curtains twitched with incandescent but cowardly irritation when the latest incongruous symphony erupted into life. For weeks, carriages had been bringing mysterious deliveries to the house. There were wooden crates barely able to fit through the door, Strange bottles and flasks containing vividly coloured liquids. Weighty books full of scientific symbols and improbable calculations. Should a cart driver call at the incorrect door, self-righteous neighbours would claim they'd never heard of the street having a number 26. Such was their determination to disassociate themselves with the boisterous activities taking place within. After this night, however, the neighbours would have no further cause to gripe. An ethereal rumble began to emanate from the basement in the middle of the street. The light grew brighter, cycling through the colour spectrum as the windows of every house rattled. Some residents would later claim a cry could be heard above the swelling racket. Others would call it a scream. With a shockwave that startled the window plants but left the panes intact, the sound and light subsided for the final time. The greatest discovery of the age had taken place but only one of the residents of Atwell Street was ever to know it. Chapter One The Map The first blue sky of spring stretched far above the busy London skyline. Though a chill lingered on the breeze, the streets were full of people emerging from the long, dark winter to amble in the sunshine. At odds with the sauntering crowd, a determined figure flitted and dashed between pedestrians, offering cheery but hurried apologies as she went. 
terribly sorry, just squeezing past it. Don't mind me. Oh, what a magnificent hat, madam. So few people can carry off a stuffed sparrow. Excuse me, might I just dash past? Many couldn't help but turn their heads to follow her. So striking was her manner of dress. Forgoing the exquisitely shaped and delicately coloured gowns worn by the women around her, she sported a long, dark blue battered frock coat. A deep brown waistcoat and a shabby shirt were accompanied by a haphazardly arranged royal blue cravat. Much to the huffing incredulity of the crowd, she wore a pair of baggy trousers, tucked inside long boots caked with mud and soot. A broad-brimmed hat sat atop her unbrushed hair, which was dark but for a single white streak. Offering a pleasant smile and a doff of her hat to those who met her gaze, the professor hurriedly crossed the busy street and disappeared down a narrow road held in shadow by the towering buildings either side. She paused beside a set of packing cases outside a shop. Removing her hat, she beat the worst of the dust from her coat and then straightened her cravat. Lying on the crates was a ginger cat, snoozing in the shade. It raised its head to greet her. "'Hello, puss,' said the professor as she extended a hand to stroke the friendly feline. "'Keeping away from all the hustle and fuss, eh? Eminently wise, dear heart.' She left the purring cat to return to its slumber and regarded the shop. In its window display, globes, maps and weighty books surrounded a beautiful model ship. She peered in at the miniature vessel and broke into a broad grin, then pushed open the shop door and stepped inside. The interior was lined from floorboard to ceiling plaster with bookcases. The mismatched tomes were joined on the shelves by peculiar objects and curios from every country on earth. Some carved from wood, some cast from metal, others modelled in clay. A beautiful mahogany table stood in the middle of the room, flanked with tea chests filled with rolled-up sheets of canvas and paper. In the corner stood a desk and comfortable chair, set before a tiny doorway. The professor placed her hat on the table and clasped her hands behind her back, turning on her heels to take in every book, artefact and parchment. The room filled her with the excitement of a child on Christmas morning. She sighed happily as bustling became audible from the other side of the inner doorway. We're open, we're open, a kindly voice reassured her. We're not in any hurry, but we are open. No rush, Runcible, the professor called back. Ah, professor, I knew it was going to be a pleasant morning. How right I was. Runcible was an elderly man who walked with a cane. His frizzy white hair defied comb and brush, and his pale green eyes darted around with a childlike curiosity and kindness. He shuffled into the room and grasped the professor's hand. "'Sorry it's been so long, old man,' she said. "'Terribly busy, lost track of time. Is it still 1872?' They shared a knowing smile. "'Been away on one of your expeditions, I take it?' he asked as he lowered himself into the chair behind the little desk. Where was it the last time? The Alps? The professor began to look through one of the chests full of rolled-up papers. It was, indeed, but nowhere as far flung this time. I've been firmly footed at home. Ah, the laboratory. He leant forward conspiratorially, though there was none to overhear. What new invention have you masterminded this time? You know my rule, Runcible. Never tell until it's tried and tested. 
It's still just a theory until it provably works. Bah, he retorted playfully as he leant back into his chair. Where are the maps of London? They're quite behind you. Marvellous. And how has business been? Steady but unremarkable. Mostly those hapless explorer chappies after provision for their glorified holidays. Maps to find some poor undisturbed place they can storm into and claim as their own. I ought to shut up shop. Enough of that, the professor said sternly. Whatever would I do without you? Runcible smiled, then got to his feet and headed for the doorway. You know I took delivery of a new batch of maps only last week. I think they're back here. No, no, it's an old map I need. In fact, she unrolled a length of thick yellow parchment and beamed. This is just the thing. The old man walked over to join her and frowned at the map she'd selected. <laughs> I can't see that being much use to you. Trust me, it'll be invaluable. She rolled up the parchment, then took a handful of coins from her pocket and gave them to him. His eyes widened. For that scribbly old thing, I don't even know if it's accurate. It'll be perfect, I promise. Now, go and put your feet up. She leant forward and kissed him on the forehead. I'll tell you all about it when I get back. Back from London? You're already in it. Not much of this old city left to explore. No, I'll find something. She winked as she picked up her hat and turned for the door. Beg! Runcible called after her, stooping to pick up the abandoned satchel. He was foiled by the weight of it. What on earth's in here? Supplies for the trip. I've been shopping. Supplies? I'll never understand you, Margill. Such peculiarities. I learnt them all from you, she replied as she pulled the bag over her shoulder. With a final beaming smile, she opened the door and stepped into the street. <laughs> bon voyage, my dear, Runcible chuckled, then made his way back to his chair. Outside, the professor glanced back at the shop and then walked up to the ginger cat still dozing on the packing boxes. Keep an eye on him, puss, she said as the cat raised its head once again. And wish me luck. With that, she placed her hat back on her head and strode back into the busy streets. It was nearly time. Chapter 2 The Machine Night had fallen on Atwell Street, and though no cacophony could be heard from the basement of number 26, light still shone from the basement windows. Inside, hidden well away from prying eyes, was Professor Cronomier's laboratory. Like Runcible's shop, it was lined with shelves of books and extraordinary objects the Professor had picked up on her travels around the world. The muddle of books would have made a strong librarian weep, Scientific journals and textbooks were interspersed with romantic novels, play scripts, academic essays and penny-dreadful thrillers. The professor was scampering between the many workbenches pushed up against the bookcases. Rifling through stacks of papers and apparatus, she would occasionally locate what she sought and throw it into her leather bag, which sat open on the floor, before moving on to the next search. "'I had a spare bottle of ink somewhere. Have you seen it?' she called out. Then she straightened, realising she was alone. No, no, of course not. Ah, here it is. 
She grabbed a container of black liquid and placed it in the bag, closing it carefully before turning to the middle of the room. The fantastical object which stood in the centre of the laboratory would have baffled any and all who laid eyes on it. Standing seven feet tall, it was centred on a round marble platform raised six inches above the ground. This was surrounded by banks of levers, buttons, dials and switches, which trailed wires in a beautifully chaotic mess down to the floor. From there, the threads wrapped themselves around five great brass pillars which rose up, curving to meet at the dead centre above the podium. A rotor sat at the apex, spouting five blades of copper that bent down to follow the frame of the device. On top of the control banks were glass tanks, tubes and bottles, finished in polished wooden cases. Hanging from the brass pillars above the podium was a large hourglass held in a frame of silver discs which allowed it to spin in every direction. Standing before the professor was the world's first time machine. She moved forward and placed a hand on one of the brass pillars wrapped with wires. A tingle of excitement fizzled up her arm and she stepped up onto the platform. Her reflection beamed back at her from the glass apparatus and polished levers. She looked up at the hourglass and nudged it ever so slightly off balance. The machine quivered with a gentle metallic hum and she immediately gripped the glass to stop it moving. Not yet, she whispered. Nearly there. She closed her eyes and steadied her breathing before stepping down from the platform and back into the laboratory. She grabbed her heavy leather bag and placed it inside the machine before walking over to one of the workbenches and picking up a small glass bottle of green liquid. Then, a sudden thought struck her, and she placed it back down on the bench. Sydney! She returned to the leather bag, opened it, took out a head of lettuce, and ran for the stairs. She emerged into the hallway, where a large glass tank sat atop a table. The interior of the tank was taken up with a small pool of water beside a mound of earth dotted with tropical plants and rocks. On the damp earth sat a tortoise. The professor set the lettuce aside, carefully reached inside the tank, and lifted the creature up to meet her gaze. Now then, old chap, decision time. Tag along on the maiden voyage or stay in with a good book? The tortoise blinked, then opened and closed its mouth, chewing the air. Quite right. Best see how the first expedition pans out, then make your mind up from there. You're the brains of the outfit, Sydney, old thing. She kissed the top of his head, returned him to his tank, and tore off a lettuce leaf for him to munch on. Now, if I'm not back by lunchtime tomorrow, Mrs Preston from the bookshop's under orders to come and keep an eye on you. So no bacchanals while I'm away, do you understand? Sydney nibbled on the lettuce leaf. Cheeky tortoise. Right, I'll be back before you know it. Hopefully. She opened the door to the basement and descended the first few steps before turning back and approaching the tank. Fine, fine, she huffed, as she tore off another leaf and placed it beside Sydney. But it'll go straight to your hips, mark my words. She broke off another leaf for herself, grinned at her amphibian friend, and disappeared once more. Crunching on the last of the lettuce leaf as she returned to the laboratory, the professor picked up the vial of green liquid and walked back to the machine. No time like the present. Well, let's test that theory, shall we? She stepped up onto the marble podium. Butterflies somersaulted around her stomach and sent bursts of excitement through her arms and legs. Her heart began to gallop, but she breathed slowly to calm it. 
Closing her eyes momentarily, she removed the stopper from the bottle. She panicked as another thought struck. Where was the map? She opened her bag and there it was, exactly where she'd left it. She took another deep breath, then turned to a glass funnel stood atop one of the control panels. Into this, she poured the green solution, and then held her breath. The fluid spiralled down a glass tube to join a flask of clear liquid, which immediately turned blue and began to bubble. Gas rose up to another tube, and soon a chain reaction whizzed along the glassware, different colour liquids frothing and sloshing, even glowing. A hiss of steam filled the laboratory as white clouds began to seep from the bottom of the machine. Lights on the control panel illuminated and the brass pillars started to ring with energy. The professor began methodically adjusting levers and switches and a metallic hum rose steadily. The copper blades arching over the machine started to rotate and slice through the warm air of the laboratory. Next, she turned her attention to a set of numbered dials and carefully adjusted them until they read exactly the right combination. Certain it was correct, she reached up to the hourglass in its silver frame, breathed in, and pushed it into motion. Immediately, the hourglass span in all directions, rolling 720 degrees around and around. Static electricity built up and sparked through it, but no matter its orientation, the sand inside managed to flow steadily from one chamber to another. A wind whipped up in the laboratory, scattering papers and rocking the artefacts lining the shelves. Steam flowed from the machine, and the rotating blades grew faster and faster. The hourglass span, and the multicoloured liquids bubbled in a frenzy. The professor flicked more switches and turned dials and pulled levers, sweat building up on her brow. She looked up and saw the laboratory blur before her. The familiar shelves and benches became indistinct, a shimmering light permeating the walls. The groaning and hissing of the machine increased, joining together in a magnificent song of discovery. With a final flash of light, the machine and the professor were gone. Chapter 3. The Vortex Just before she left the laboratory, the professor had flinched as a bitingly cold pocket of air engulfed her. Slowly it drifted away, and she opened her eyes to take in her new surroundings. Though the winds whipping at the controls came from all directions, the machine was definitely hurtling upwards. It swayed and span in a giddying dance that made the professor whoop and cheer in wonder. On all sides, she was surrounded by what at first glance looked like the walls of some great upright tunnel, but as her eyes adjusted to the whirling of the machine, she saw that their texture was somewhere between streams of smoke and sheets of water, all of the most fantastic shades of silver and grey. The machine's rotation soon caught up with the copper blades hanging down from the top of the brass pillars, making it look as though they'd stopped. The professor checked the readings on the control panel and inspected the bubbling liquid in the many glass chambers. The fluid settled from a frantic boil to a steady simmer. Above her, the hourglass continued to spin, but the static electricity had calmed. Satisfied that her machine had reached a state of equilibrium as it navigated the great vortex of space-time, she let go of the levers and dials and caught her breath. An ethereal wind whistled and sang around her. The silvery tunnel shimmered, emitting a sound like a thousand raindrops tumbling into a stream. It struck the professor as akin to standing in the middle of the most enormous waterfall. She felt the urge to reach out and let the water cascade over her fingertips, but the impulse immediately set her mind to work, 
and she recalled one of the experiments she intended to carry out whilst in flight. Rummaging in her leather bag, she found a small terracotta pot filled with soil. Sitting proud of the earth were the remains of a plant, a forlorn wilted stem and dried fallen leaves. She held the pot carefully in both hands. Sorry to use you as a test subject, old thing, but it might just do you the world of good. She steadily extended her arms and held the pot away from the frame of the machine. It edged closer to the glistening walls of the tunnel, and a single note rang up and down the whirlpool around her. The professor's eyes filled with light as the withered stem began to rise from the soil and the leaves levitated to rejoin it. The outlines of petals formed in the shimmering depths of the vortex walls and drifted to the stalk, gathering together to form a brilliant orange flower. Astonishing! The professor gasped as she brought the restored plant back into the confines of the machine. Now, I wonder... She reached behind her ear and retrieved a stubby pencil. She held it out just as she had done with the plant, and grinned at the sight of the glittering pencil shavings forming within the tunnel walls before wrapping themselves around the pencil until it was twice, three, four times the length it had been. A ringing noise caused the professor to glance up, but the space-time vortex disappeared into a pool of white light. Suddenly, her arm felt heavy, and she glanced back at the pencil to discover it had been replaced with a sturdy tree branch. Ah, a little too far back there. Noted for next time. She placed the log on top of one of the instrument panels, and then looked back at the hourglass. Though it continued to spin this way and that, she could see the sand inside steadily passing from one chamber to the other, unaffected by the spiralling timepiece. Now, there's a wet raspberry to the laws of motion. Sorry, Isaac. Not long to go now. No, wait. Can time travel take time? <laughs> this is going to be a linguistic challenge, I can tell. The professor took a notebook from one pocket, grabbed a new pencil from another, and scribbled a few quick observations before a chilling roar ripped through her concentration. What the heavens? She spun around to look at the vortex, and somewhere, deep beyond the shimmering veil, a dark shadow had formed. It pulsed and heaved as it took shape, a silhouette obscured by the glistening eddy of time. It grew larger and more defined, as though moving towards the machine. The professor stole a glance behind her, and sure enough, more of these shapes were forming. She looked back to the first sinister gaunt figure. Two pinpoints of yellow fire glowed from where its eyes ought to be, and below them, another larger orb of light formed, a mouth, emitting the same retching scream she'd heard before. It fixed its gaze on the professor, who watched as the shadow grew what must have been an arm and sluggishly began to reach out. A screeching echo sounded as it finally penetrated the walls of the whirlpool, a ghastly array of webbed talons stretching out from the depths of the strange new world the professor had entered. The claws became a gnarled hand at the end of a bony, blackened arm. The jagged nails made their way towards the professor. Who... who are you? What are you? She gasped as her throat began to tighten. The creature, still blurred by the silver cascade, opened its mouth, and the yellow ball of fire sputtered and gargled. Gradually it formed a word in a sickly, skin-crawling rasp. Stranger! 
The professor searched for what to say. More shadows appeared all around her, growing larger and darker as they drifted forwards. I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a, a visitor, uh, a traveller. Professor! Her mouth closed, and her throat felt like fire. The webbed hand flexed its talons, but the professor made the first move, spinning round and hammering the controls to increase the machine's speed. The hourglass suspended above her span all the more frantically, firing out bolts of energy that struck the menacing shadows circling the professor. The creature's hand withdrew, and the dark shapes retreated back beyond the vortex walls, sinking down and out of sight as the machine accelerated upwards. The professor stood stunned for a moment, then clasped her eyes closed. This too shall pass, she whispered to herself, and then opened her eyes. They fixed on the hourglass. The sand had almost finished transferring from one chamber to another. The journey was nearly over. Right then, arrival procedures. Ready? This was directed at the potted plant. Let's just hope we find a clear space to moor up. I don't much fancy landing in the middle of a brick wall, do you? She pulled a series of levers and turned more dials. The machine's rotation slowed, and the coloured liquid in the myriad of glass containers began to bubble more fiercely. Looking up, she could see the white light getting brighter and larger. The walls of the vortex shimmered and shone more brightly, and the icy pocket of air swelled over the machine again. Recalling the disturbing creature that had reached out to her from whatever lay outside the silver whirlpool, Professor Cronomier steeled herself. Like a captain sailing on a stormy sea trying to reach land, she feared being dashed upon the rocks beneath the waves. Her calculations had served her well thus far, and now she would see if the final equations truly balanced. As the coldness engulfed her and the white light of the vortex swallowed the machine, she pulled the final lever. Chapter 4 The River For a moment there was nothing. And then, like a warm balm, sunlight bathed the professor's closed eyes and beckoned them to open. The cry of birds and the soothing slosh of water stroking the shore filled her ears, and she determined to take a glance at her surroundings. No sooner had she opened her eyes, they were filled with tears. She had done it. The machine had worked. Her landing site was at the bank of a great river, whose water ebbed and flowed mere metres from where the machine stood its cocked blades slowing to a halt. Across the water lay an entirely new skyline. Rows of buildings clad in plaster were punctuated by a forest of steeples from churches and cathedrals. Wiping her eyes on her sleeve, the professor quickly opened her bag and took out Runcible's map. Unrolling it, she looked at the scratchy illustrations and compared them with the horizon. There were all manner of inaccuracies, as Runcible had warned, but it was undoubtedly a match. Tudor London the professor rolled the map up again and stepped down from the marble platform onto the hard earth. A few tentative steps brought her closer to the water. She hadn't breathed since the machine had landed. Savouring the moment, she smiled and prepared to draw in lungfuls of historic London air. And then she choked. Coughing and spluttering, she grabbed a handkerchief from her pocket and held it over her nose. By the laws of physics, what a whiff! The air was indeed thick with an odour she daren't ponder the origins of, though it stood as a pungent reminder that the London of the 16th century was not as sanitised as her own time. 
Eventually her coughing subsided, but the stench lingered far longer. Old you knows, in through the mouth, just like eating broccoli. Now then! She pocketed the handkerchief and returned to the machine. She placed the map on top of the leather bag, which she set to one side, and lifted up the marble platform to reveal a hidden compartment. Inside was a huge piece of rough fabric, which she removed before lowering the platform again. She shook the fabric out and threw it over the machine. Straightening the fabric to ensure her invention was fully covered, a scampering noise momentarily caught her ear and she turned. She had landed in an alleyway between two buildings, the river at one end, a street to the other. Hello? Wasn't expecting a welcome party. Above her, to one side, a window opened with a creak. Instinct led her to dart a few steps up the alleyway, and sure enough, a splash of stale liquid hit the floor where she'd been standing. Walking cautiously back towards the machine, she looked up at the window. A craggy-faced woman with a white cap glared down at her. The professor raised her hat. "'Morning, madam. I'll forego the impromptu shower, if you don't mind.' The woman merely grunted and closed the window. The professor replaced her hat, then grabbed the map in one hand and slung the leather bag over her shoulder with the other. "'Well, then, a wide new world to explore.' Being careful not to breathe too deeply, she sidestepped the newly placed puddle and walked along the alleyway, emerging moments later into the street. Like the London of her own time, the thoroughfare was packed with people, though far narrower than she had expected. The buildings on either side were three or four storeys tall, each new tier jutting out further into the street until the roofs almost touched. The road was paved but muddy, strewn with straw and so uneven in places the professor had to watch her step lest she tripped. The crowd moved slowly, which gave her all the more time to turn and take in every detail of the living history she now walked through. Each aspect of her surroundings excited and enthralled her. The dark beams, cracked plaster, and small grimy windows of the buildings. The catalogue of faces passing her in every direction. The wooden carts inching along in the throng of the great Tudor populace. Hello, she said to a man passing in the opposite direction, a tremor of excitement ringing in her voice. Morning, he replied with a faint smile and a raised eyebrow for her unusual clothes. Have a pleasant day she chimed at a young woman who was heading into one of the buildings. "'And the same to you,' she grinned before disappearing inside. "'Lovely weather this morning,' she offered to the driver of a cart edging along nearby. "'Pox on it,' came the reply. "'Some things never change, it seems,' the professor smiled. Suddenly a scream rang out from another side street. Several in the crowd stopped and looked to one another in puzzlement, but the professor, ever alert, immediately turned in search of the unrest. Just as she had done that morning in her own version of London, she flitted through the crowd. Uh, pardon me, sorry, could I just... Eventually she reached the source of the scream. A girl of no more than eight stood weeping, clutching her mother's apron. Don't be silly, girl. There's nothing there, the mother chided. Hello there. Professor Cronomier at your service, the professor said with the raising of her hat. What's the trouble? No trouble, ma'am. She's mucking about. It was down there, sobbed the girl, pointing down a dark tunnel. What was, my dear girl? asked the professor, as she crouched down beside the child. Don't mind me, said a chirpy voice passing close by in the street. Not at all, the professor replied. But she didn't catch the person's face. It was a shadow, the girl began, but her mother had had enough. Hush you! Don't waste the lady's time. Come on, 
Oh, it's no problem at all, really. It was too late. The woman had pulled the girl away. Hmm. Back to the matter in hand. I wonder whereabouts in the city I... Oh, no! The map had gone. She'd been holding it in her hand but had not noticed its disappearance. She looked frantically around at the pavement in the hope that she'd merely dropped it in the confusion, but already knew what had happened. The owner of the chipper voice had been a thief. Silly, foolish, daft professor. Barely here five minutes and look what's happened. She turned to begin pursuit of the crook, but only managed a few steps. Ringing out from the dark passageway came a strained, unearthly screech that sent cold fear through her veins. She turned on her heel and cautiously approached the passage. It was deserted, but she needed no confirmation now of the shadow the young girl had seen that so frightened her. The scream was unmistakable. It was the cry of the creatures she'd seen in the vortex. One had followed her. Chapter 5 The Fraudster Ingram Fraser strode along a London back street flanked by two tall, fearsome-looking men. Their height was accentuated by Fraser's own unimposing stature, which he attempted to compensate for by wearing a tall stovepipe hat. To make up for the headwear being a little smaller than he would have liked, a flamboyant orange feather had been wedged into the hat's band. Had he been born in the professor's time, Fraser might have been mistaken for a garish lampstand. He and his associates turned a corner and approached an unassuming house with a plain wooden door. Fraser took his place a few feet from the entrance, arms clasped behind his back and his nose pointed skywards. He cleared his throat and waited. Nothing happened. He looked to the heavens and quashed a tantrum, then turned to look at Cranmar, the thug to his left. Knock on the door. Oh, uh, sorry, sir. Cranmar stepped forward and rapped his knuckle on the door once. That's not how you... Fraser began, then thought better of it and turned to Vickers, the other imposing bodyguard. You do it. Yes, sir. Vickers took Cranmar's place and knocked on the door, continuously. Whilst his ability to keep rhythm could be lauded, the sound only served to twist Fraser's already contorted temper ever tighter. Swounds, are you really so deficient of the mind that you can't... He was cut off as the door opened. Terrified of losing face, Fraser snapped back to his affected stance of aloofness and looked down his nose at the man who'd answered. Oh, said the man. Ingram. Fraser didn't reply. He cleared his throat. There was silence. He looked at Cranmar and cleared his throat again. Cranmar quickly reached inside his tunic and pulled out a handkerchief. No! Fraser exploded, but stopped short of a rant and turned to Vickers, tilting his head towards the man in the doorway to indicate he should speak to him. What do I say? asked Vickers. The money! Oh yeah, we've come for the money, he said to Fraser. Tell him! Fraser pointed to the man in the doorway. Sorry, we've come for the... I heard you the first time around, said the man. He'd turned to Fraser. I told you, Ingram, I don't have it. Fraser abandoned the idea of asking his goons to speak for him. I signed a bond to you for sixty pounds, good Master Woodliff. In return for two pistols you claimed to have in your store. Pistols I am yet to lay eyes upon. 
I have informed you by letter that I sold said items on your behalf to a collector. Aye, for thirty pounds. He drove a hard bargain. Poppycock. Which means I am owed thirty pounds, Master Woodleff, plus the accumulated interest, of course. Interest? The sum owed is sixty pounds. Of all the underhanded, have you got the money, Sirrah? No, I do not. Regrettable. Cranma, Vickers, to your business. The two burly men stepped forward and pushed their way into the house, dragging Woodleff with them. You can't, cried Woodleff. One of them grabbed his arms as the other relieved him of a velvet purse hidden inside his doublet and threw it to Fraser, who fumbled and dropped it but quickly snatched it up from the mud. You've no right, Woodleff yelled. Get out of my... The door slammed shut, cutting off his protestations. Fraser turned and walked away with the most repugnant smile on his face. Crashing and tumbling sounded from behind the closed door, along with muffled yells. Fraser turned the corner again and chuckled. He was a man of many talents, but none of them put to honest use. Repeated swindling of his society friends kept his pockets full, but his popularity limited, extending only to his fellow hustlers, tricksters and fraudsters. As he pondered what to do with the remainder of his afternoon, he passed a shabby building whose door had been left open. He glanced inside, not intending to stop, but froze when a sickly rattle echoed from within. He was about to move on when it sounded again, and he took a step towards the doorway. If you've got the plague, you're best keeping the door closed, he called inside. The rasping replied to him. Fry, fry, the voice slithered across the back of his neck like an icy snake. Who's there? Fraser. Do I know you? If you're after money, I've none about me, I... Enter. He wanted to run, to flee back to Cranmer and Vickers and cower behind them, but his feet betrayed him. They followed the call of the voice and stepped across the threshold. There was precious little light inside. The windows were covered and no candle or fire had been lit. The open door provided scant illumination, just enough to make a strange shape vaguely discernible in the corner of the room. It heaved and pulsated as Fraser entered. Every impulse in his body wanted to retreat, but something inhuman was pulling him further into the room. Who are you? Closer. The shadow began to unfurl itself, towering above Fraser. What are you? Fraser cried. The end. A bony, blackened claw reached out, wrapping itself around Fraser's throat. I, we, are the end. The door slammed shut, cutting off the screams. Chapter 6 The Tavern a frantic hunt through the narrow streets had led to naught in the professor's search for her map. It held no great value in terms of navigation. She was certain she could find her way back to the machine unaided. Nor did it pose any anachronistic consequences. It was contemporaneous to the period she'd landed in. Rather, it was the frustration of having been so careless as to lose it, and so soon after landing. She made her way along a variety of streets, choosing her steps carefully so as to avoid the scattered potholes and horse droppings. The scream of the vortex creature faded in and out of her mind, but no plan of action presented itself. 
It had been evening when she'd left her own time, several hours ago, relatively speaking. Tiredness was rising through her, and she determined to find accommodation for the night. On a quiet street close to the river, she found a tavern named the Cart Horse. She glanced up at its unassuming exterior and ventured inside with caution, only too aware of the reputation of London alehouses for brawls and more dangerous deeds. The interior was dull but well kept. Dozens of patrons clustered together on stools round rough wooden tables. The floor's wide flagstones were covered by a fine coat of straw, and a fire glowed in the hearth. The professor removed her hat and approached a petite woman with a lined face who was collecting empty tankards. "'Excuse me, madam. I wonder if you've any rooms to spare this evening?' "'Aye, we do, if you don't mind the cold. There's no fireplace and a cold night ahead. A blanket will suit me admirably, I'm sure.' "'Blankets, is it?' She raised a brow, but a twinkle in her eye betrayed her caustic tone. "'Very high and fine, ma'am, I'm sure.' The professor raised a brow of her own and matched the haughty air. I must have mistaken for marking this as a reputable establishment. After a moment's pause, they both chuckled, and the old woman nodded to an empty table nearby. Mistress Bradley, welcome to the cart horse. Get yourself sat down and I'll bring you a slice of something for your supper. Many thanks, dear lady. The professor set down her bag and sat on a wooden stool, leaning back against the cool wall for comfort. She glanced around the tavern and couldn't help but grin. Some hours might have passed since she'd arrived at the bank of the Thames, but the thrill of seeing history all around her had not diminished. Mistress Bradley brought a tankard of ale and a plate with a slice of meat pie on it and placed them on the table. There's more to spare, should you wish it. Not seen a man or woman yet who could stomach second helpings of these pies, mind. Thank you. It looks most... intriguing. Intriguing? That's new. I'll have the serving girl take your bag up and pass you your key. Won't be a sec. She turned to go back to the bar. Intriguing. Eh, that'll do it. The professor took a sip of the ale. It was strong but not bitter. The pie she considered more carefully, but hunger overtook her and she ventured a mouthful. Though not unpleasant, the difficulty in judging quite what meat it was filled with was disconcerting. May I interrupt? A smooth male voice inquired. The professor looked up to see a slim young man with untidy straw-like hair and a neat beard standing beside her. It appears rather more crowded than usual. Might I sit with you? Of course, she replied, after swallowing a mouthful of pastry. Much obliged. He took off a long dark cloak and sat opposite her at the table. There was a bohemian air about him and an unmistakable confidence. Mistress Bradley approached and set a full tankard before him. I'd hoped we'd seen the last of you, she grunted, then held out a hand. He grinned. How could I stay away when there is such, he looked at the pie, fine cuisine to be enjoyed. He took her hand and kissed it. She clipped him lightly across the head. Three shillings you owe me. How could it have slipped my mind? How indeed. He reached down, took out a purse, and produced three coins. Any discount for a smile? No she said, and took the coins before turning to the professor. Watch yourself. With that she left. The man put away his purse and chuckled to himself. Are you lodging here as well? asked the professor. 
No, my debts were drawn up some time ago. I was hoping the poor dear might have forgotten, but her memory's not deserted her yet, it seems. Neither's her hearing, she called from across the tavern. I'm just passing through, he continued. I have an appointment to meet a friend this evening. What brings you to the city? Idle curiosity, really. You live nearby, then? You, you work in London? The man sighed. I have all manner of engagements to keep me amused. Trifles, really. Mistress Bradley walked past, collecting more tankards. She saw the professor's bag still sitting on the floor and walked to the foot of the stairs. Astrid! Shift your eye, there's a bag needs moving. Mind your temper, I'm coming, I'm coming, came the reply from the upper floor. The professor's eyes widened. Unmistakably, it was the voice of the thief who'd taken her map. Footsteps sounded on the creaking wooden stairs. The professor stood and dashed behind a wooden beam standing in the middle of the room. Is something the matter? asked the young man. Say nothing! Very well. He picked up his tankard and leaned casually on the table, sipping his ale. A young girl descended the stairs. Like her employer, she was petite, with a shock of brown hair covered by a scruffy flat cap. She wore a plain white smock marked with smudges and stains, not least its hem, which had clearly been walked through many a muddy puddle. Over the smock was a pale blue kirtle, loosely tied. She looked about the tavern and spotted the leather bag. "'This yours?' she asked the young man. "'Indeed it is not,' he countered, and glanced at the pillar nearby. The professor stepped out into the open. "'Come to pick the rest of my pockets, have we?' "'Oh, blood, it's you!' She made to run, but the man at the table stuck out her foot and tripped her. The professor lurched forward to catch her before she fell and held her tightly by the elbows. "'Get your hands off! What's the upset here? I'll have no brawls in my house!' chided Mistress Bradley as she approached. "'This young maid of yours relieved me of my property earlier today,' explained the professor. "'Astrid, for all that's holy, I've told you that's to stop!' "'A regular criminal,' mused the young man. "'I would like my map back.' The serving girl looked from the professor to Mistress Bradley to the man who'd tripped her. There was no use protesting. "'All right, have it back then.' She reached inside her smock and produced the map. She'd flattened the rolled of parchment and folded it over. The professor took it, unfolded it, and checked it was no counterfeit. "'That's enough from you, my girl, or you're out on your own again!' snapped Mistress Bradley. "'No!' cried the girl. Oh, "'There's no need, really, there isn't,' the professor said calmly. "'See? She's not hassled. Oh, don't turn me out, please!' Her employer frowned. Ah, "'Go and sweep up!' Astrid glanced at the professor before picking up a nearby broom and exiting. "'Well, this has been beautifully diverting, but I must leave,' said the young man. He downed the last of his ale and picked up his cloak. Turning to the professor, he held out his hand. "'A pleasure to meet you, Miss—' "'Professor Cronemier!' She took his hand, which he kissed. "'Professor, forgive me.' With that, he turned to leave. "'I didn't discover your name, good sir.' "'Marlowe. Christopher Marlowe.' He nodded to her and left the tavern. Chapter 7. The Ambush Marlowe exited the tavern and looked up at the pale evening sky streaked with ribbons of pink and orange clouds. He took a moment to cautiously peer at each of the doorways, alleys and dark passageways surrounding him. Content he was unobserved, he began his journey.
The streets were thinly populated by now, and pinpoints of candlelight could be spotted through the windows of each house compacted into the crowded roads. Marlow made a point of never staying on one street too long, snaking his way through the maze of narrow roads and keeping his head lowered save for a glance over his shoulder when he turned each corner. For a while he strode along the banks of the Thames, which boasted a dappled reflection of the low-hanging sun and watercolour sky. Keeping a pace not lacking in urgency, but slow enough to allay suspicion, Marlowe made good progress across the city. Despite his clandestine route, though, he had not avoided being followed. "'Which way did he go?' asked the Professor as she dashed from the tavern. "'Here, I thought you were staying the night. I'm supposed to be helping you with your bags,' chimed Astrid, who had been sweeping the pavement. "'Helping me with them or helping yourself to them, dear heart?' Astrid gritted her teeth. "'I'm sorry about the map. I thought it might be worth something.' "'Oh, well, in that case you are absolved of all wrongdoing, my dear. "'If you were only stealing something for monetary gain, I quite understand.' "'Really?' "'No! Try walking in my shoes and saying that.' "'The Professor was pacing back and forth, unable to make up her mind which way to go. "'Oh, I can't have lost him. "'Why is he so important?' "'Why? He's Kit Marlowe. "'Kit? Christopher, one of the greatest playwrights of the age.' "'Oh, he's one of them,' said Astrid. He'll be headed for the theatre, then. Which one? Astrid scoffed. Which one? The theatre, you clothhead. North of the city walls. North. But east of where we are now, so... The professor turned slowly and looked at the lengthening twilight shadows. Adjusting her mental compass, she came to a halt. That way! And away she strode. It's nearly curfew! Astrid called after her. The city gates will be locked. It was too late. The professor was already disappearing from view. Astrid sighed, dropped her broom, lifted her smock above her ankles and ran off in pursuit. <sighs> Bleeding tourists! Having taken a protracted route to the east of the city, Marlow now turned north towards Shoreditch, along deserted side streets. Knowing time was short, he increased his pace, when out of the corner of his eye he noticed a heavy-set gentleman step out of the middle of the road ahead of him. He slowed and looked up. The burly man stood with his arms folded, fixing Marlowe with a threatening stare. Marlowe swallowed and continued, moving over to one side of the street as though to walk around the unknown interloper. As he neared, the man stepped across the street and blocked him again. Marlowe stopped and looked back the way he'd come. Sure enough, another, similar figure was approaching, preventing any form of retreat. Marlowe turned back to the first man and met his gaze. There was something unnatural about his eyes. They were clouded, but the mist seemed to swirl about behind the surface of his eyeballs, as if some teeming trickster dwelt within. The professor had broken into a jog, with Astrid close behind. He's just a writer, not the Queen Bess's new consort. But think of the insight I could get into his plays. This is a unique opportunity for study. No, it ain't. He's in a cart horse most weeks, when Mistress Bradley's not chasing him out of the house, that is. What luck I landed in this year of all years. Mind you, after that snafu in the vortex, might be a little wide of the target. What year is this? Eh? Astrid had fallen behind. The professor slowed to a brisk walk to let her catch up. What year is it, young lady? The name's Astrid. Unusual name? I'm an unusual young lady. Hm, indeed. Still, wise enough to know what year it is, I'd assume. "'Cause you ain't. Please.' "'1593, last time I looked her up. 
The professor slowed to a stop. What month? You really are having me on. Which month? She repeated sternly. May. And the date? Astrid knew better than to mock the traveller further. There was a fear in her voice which belayed a wayward answer. It's the 29th. The professor's frown eased by the tiniest margin. Then she turned and ran. Astrid watched her go and called after her. What does it matter? So what if it's the 29th? Is it his birthday? I wish it were, the professor said to herself as Astrid gave chase. Who are you? Marlowe asked the first of the sinister guards with a steady voice. Sent by the Privy Council? No, came a hissing voice from a doorway to his right. Standing in the shadow of a building was the oddest man Marlowe had ever seen. He looked as though his skin had been stretched over a body too tall for it. Around his eyes and mouth the flesh had been worn thin and ripped. Beneath the skin were the bones of no human skeleton, sharp and angular where they ought to have been smooth. From under his long, dark cloak the ripped remains of once expensive clothes were visible. The man moved forward and Marlowe, in spite of the hideous corruptions made to his fellow human's form, recognised him. Freiser? No, I am not Freiser. From within his cloak he withdrew an arm. His doublet and tunic had been shredded, so too had the skin. In its place were a set of jagged talons set into scaly skin. Marlowe reached inside his own cloak and drew a dagger, pointing it at the inhuman arm. Don't come any closer. He took a step back, straight into Cranmar who wrapped an arm around each of Marlowe's and held him tightly. Marlowe tried in vain to swipe at him with the dagger, but his captor's crushing grip forced him to drop it. Vickers stomped over and picked it up. The creature took Marlowe by the throat. We are the end. We are the wraith. Chapter 8. The Wraith Whatever you are, I, I can bargain, spluttered Marlowe. No words, wordsmith, hissed the creature wearing Fryzer's skin. Your light is sputtering. I will snuff it out. No, the creature turned Fryzer's head. The professor was standing further up the street, the sun behind her casting a long shadow on the mud and straw, and the evening breeze lilting against her long, dark coat. Stranger! Professor, if you recall. You've not forgotten me already, have you? The creature did nothing, still clasping Marlowe by the throat. Because it is you, isn't it? said the professor as she took a cautious step forward. From the vortex. Vortex? strained Marlowe. You've followed me here. Most ungallant to tag along uninvited, you know. Now, put the playwright down. Professor, mused the creature. Professor Cronomier. You know him? Marlowe's eyes widened. You have me at a disadvantage, the professor countered, trying not to betray her unsettled nerves. Again, most uncivil. Who are you? What are you? His name is... Marlowe began, but the creature tightened its grip and he was silenced. We are the Wraith. That's a start. Now, where are you from? Nowhere. Don't be trivial. Where? You know our home. 
the vortex? Beyond. Outside the span of time. Impossible. Ancient. And forever. Then what are you doing here? You invited us. I certainly did not. I throw a mean soiree and I cast my invitations wide, but one must draw the line somewhere. You led us to the path. The professor was silent. Your machine. You freed us. No. You tore the walls of time apart to find your way here. And then stabilised them. I calculated my journey with care. I didn't just blunder in without a plan. It was enough. A slight quiver of her lips was all that could be seen of the fear firing through the professor's body. Her throat dragged itself down to her stomach, and a hundred dark prospects clouded her mind in fear of what consequences her maiden voyage might have made possible. And now we are free. To do what? If the creature had plunged its talons through her heart, it would have terrified her less than the awful, demonic smile that spread across its face now. It uttered no words, but raised its arm, lifting Marlowe clear off the ground. He is only the first. The fourth, surely. After the poor man whose skin you appear to have commandeered and these goons. Now is not the time for pedantry, dear lady, Marlowe gasped. The servants are unharmed, merely mesmerised. Mesmerised? You learn fast. What linguistic gymnastics lie ahead, I wonder? And this host, the creature's free arm indicated its distorted face, is unimportant. Unimportant? There was nothing in its heart but contempt. His heart? You had no right... It means nothing, but this one... It looked at Marlowe. This one has power, potential. Thank you. Shut up, Kit, chided the professor. Please, let him go. This isn't right, this isn't... You'll change. Change will come to all. The wraith will rip apart this world and feed on the chaos, and you will... It was cut off by the smashing of glass as a heavy bottle exploded across Fryzer's head. God, don't he go on, moaned Astrid. The creature recoiled enough to allow Marlow to wrestle free from its grasp and duck beyond the reach of Cranmar and Vickers, who abandoned him and turned to Astrid. All right there, gents. Fancy a bottle yourselves? Astrid! Vickers made a swipe for her, but the professor grabbed Astrid's arm and pulled the girl to safety. The two mesmerised guards made to follow, but the creature held out its claw-like arms to stop them. No. Leave. It flexed its talons. The mist inside the eyes of the two men cleared and they collapsed onto the ground. The creature fixed the professor's gaze, looking to her through stolen eyes. Have the spy. Spy? Astrid looked up to Marlow with excitement. There are greater prizes in this time. The host's mind has shown us such riches. Please, just come back with me and we'll go back to my machine and leave this time be. Neither of us belongs here. We need to leave. That smile again. That evil, calculating smile. So long, Professor.
No! She leapt forward as a cloud of black smoke erupted from the ground around the creature and it leapt up to a low roof nearby. It looked back at her and then scampered away, still wrapped in borrowed skin. Immediately, Marlow ran forward and grabbed his dagger, which Vickers had dropped as he fell. The professor knelt beside Cranmar and began to check for a pulse. Come back here, you shade, Marlow cried as he ran to the building and began to clamber towards the roof. Kit, don't, the professor pleaded, but he had already disappeared from view. The fool! No, this isn't right, he isn't supposed to... Ah! She gave a scream of frustration. Astrid knelt beside her. Are these two dead? Oh, heavens. All that stuff it said about a vortex, about your machine and a journey. What was all that? Who are you? The professor was still looking at the bodies laid before her. I am a traveller, Astrid, from a very long way away. And I'm lost. Why were you so wound up about knowing the date? Where you been travelling to that you don't know about? The date. Yes, the date. The creature. The wraith. It knew. I said it would change time and it knew. Change time? What are you on about? It knew what it was doing. It would have been too early, but only just. You're certain, Astrid, beyond any doubt. Tomorrow is the 30th of May, 1593. Yes. Upon my soul, what's so special about it? It's the day that Marlowe dies. Chapter 9 The Truth The Professor and Astrid moved quickly back towards the cart horse, scanning every possible pathway for any sign of Marlowe or the Wraith. By now the final dregs of sunlight were seeping between the rooftops, and the streets had grown dark. You don't make any sense. You really don't, Astrid huffed. Ignore me. I was prattling. In shock, I suspect. Nah. Now, I know the ranting of them who gets dragged into Bedlam, and that weren't it. How does a young girl like you know about Bedlam Hospital? That ain't what we're discussing, lady. Professor. Professor Cronomier. All right, Professor. How do you know that Marlow snuffs it tomorrow? The Professor slowed to a halt. She looked into Astrid's dark, defiant eyes, and she knew any attempt to wrong-foot her would fail. Very well, she sighed. Let's get inside and I'll explain. They soon found themselves sat in front of the fire in the deserted barroom of the cart horse. Mistress Bradley placed two tankards of ale on the table behind them and fixed them with a glare. Drink up then and away to bed. Astrid, make certain you lock the doors. She didn't wait for any reply, turning back to the bar and picking up a candlestick on her way to the stairs. The professor rubbed her hands and flexed her fingers near the fire too many thoughts ebbing and flowing in her mind. Right then, Astrid said firmly after taking a slurp from her tankard. What's your tale? I'm a traveller, the professor said quietly. Where from? London. Here we go again. You don't even know where the theatre is. Not London as you know it. I... I... The tangle of inevitable questions and seemingly nonsensical explanations knotted all around her. Spit it out then. I don't travel from place to place. I travel from time to time. Just when you fancy it, like. No, not occasionally. I I travel in time. Astrid frowned. I am from London in the year 1873. The frown remained unmoved. In 280 years' time, 
I will leave my own time and travel back to 1593, where we are now. A crowbar could not have shifted it. You see, just as a horse and cart can take you from town to town, I have a device, a machine I invented, which can take me from time to time. Horses travel along roads, I travel along a vortex, which, uh, which links up your year and mine. You, you understand. You hopped on some carriage down some secret road and it took you into the past. The professor was stunned. Astrid took a long sip of her ale. I thought it would take longer to convince you I wasn't waking it up. Makes sense to me. That's marvellous. The professor beamed and sipped her own drink. It really doesn't frighten you. Frighten me? You don't think it's ludicrous? I've dreamt much the same. Reckoned I was in the court of old King Henry one time. Next night I was in the forest with Robin Hood. Stands to reason if you can think it up, you can do it with the know-how. You are an extraordinary young woman, Astrid. Truly astonishing. Cheers, Prof, she chirped and took another swig of a drink. And what of you? How did you end up here? Didn't it you lift from the next century, if that's what you mean? Where were you born? Dunno. Where are your parents? Not a clue. You're an orphan? Reckon so. You're not one to elucidate a point, are you? Don't like long answers, neither. I shared my secrets with you. What makes you think I've got secrets? Those eyes of yours, Astrid. Those eyes. What about them? An old friend of mine, a very old friend, once told me that our eyes reflect everything we are or were. Look at someone's eyes, he'd say, and you'll see their whole story. You don't need me to tell it then. Those eyes have cried too many times, Astrid, the professor muttered and drank from her tankard, leaving it to Astrid to fill the silence. I, I don't remember me, Ma and Pa. I don't remember being a nipper. First thing I knew, I, I was in hospital. Astrid's words on the way back to the tavern soared to the front of the professor's mind. You mean bedlam? For a time. Said I had a fever, needed bleeding. Kept me there for months, they did. Then they turned me out and I had to sort myself out. Picking pockets? I am my keep here. The professor raised an eyebrow. And from time to time I take what I need to keep myself clothed. Mistress Bradley don't offer me much beyond bed, bread and water, you know. Astrid, I'm... Oh, don't go starting with a pity. I make me own way, though. Plenty don't. The spitting of the dying fire filled a momentary silence before Astrid looked to the professor. That monster. That thing what tried to stick Marlow. You'd seen it before? The professor nodded. On my way here. There were several of them in the vorp on the road that brought me here to 1593. I managed to lead it here. And what was all that about change? What's it trying to change? Change will come to all, the professor recalled. The wraith will rip apart this world and feed on the chaos. And it said that Kit had potential. All a load of nonsense to me. It knew Marlow wasn't meant to die today, but it still wanted to kill him. The professor was buried in her own thoughts, staring intently into the embers of the fire. It wanted to change things, to change history, and feed on the chaos. Should have offered it one of our pies. The professor looked at Astrid with befuddlement for batting away her deductions with such abandon. And then she laughed, wholeheartedly and joyfully. Astra joined her with a giggle, then hushed her new friend in fear of Mistress Bradley hearing them. 
of all the ideas, <laughs> the professor chuckled. With a great thud and the roar of hinges, the door was flung open. A cold wind rushed into the barroom and Astrid and the professor leapt to their feet. Oh, blood, what's all this? Astrid hissed. A man staggered in and collapsed onto a stool, his head bowed over a table. Astrid quickly shut the door as the professor approached the intruder. Who are you? Where have you come from? Are you... She stopped as the man raised his head. Hello again, dear lady, panted Kit with a weary smile. His left eye was dark and his right cheek too, both from heavy blows. His bottom lip had been cut, blood was seeping down his chin. Truly, this is a blessed night. Have you any ale? And with that, he slumped onto the floor. Chapter 10 The Fugitive the wraith had made its way to the great stone wall which surrounded the city of London. The curfew bell had been rung, and the gates of the capital closed to travellers. Perched at the top of the wall, the creature monitored the streets of houses within the boundary, which were now being patrolled by night watchmen carrying lanterns. On the other side of the wall, the timber buildings gave way to open countryside. The moonlight outlined trees and hedgerows, but otherwise all was dark and silent. The wraith looked up to the clear night sky and sneered at the blazing stars. Its frenzied escape from the humans had taken a hefty toll on the borrowed skin wrapped over its body. Rips had appeared around the edges of the arms and the face looked even more displaced. The wraith stretched its neck this way and that to pull it back into place and hissed a sickly rattle into the air. Though the spy was still alive, it had had enough time to make contact with his mind. Clutching the fragile human's throat, its own mind had swamped his and absorbed everything there in an instant. There were secrets and deceptions aplenty, but one simple piece of information, one unassuming flake of knowledge about the day about to dawn, had given the creature all it needed. Back at the tavern, Marlowe had stirred and was now seated at a table drinking deeply from a tankard. The professor stood beside a window peering out into the night at one of the watchmen passing on his rounds. The scuff of footsteps signalled Astrid returning from the pantry with half a loaf of bread. "'You, my girl, are sent from the heavens,' Marlowe purred as he saw the food. "'I'm surprised to hear that from you, Kit,' said the professor, not turning away from the window. "'I thought you had no time for the great beyond.' He tore a chunk of bread from the loaf and stuffed it into his mouth. "'I may be a heretic, dear lady, but I am still a poet.' "'Don't eat with your mouth full.' "'A poet and a spy,' grinned Astrid who had seated herself next to Marlowe and was leaning forward, desperate for his story. Marlowe grinned. Mundane diplomatic work for the Crown, I assure you. And the rest? Have you met her match? Our paths have crossed. She gave me this, as a matter of fact. He mused, drawing his dagger. I knew it. What's she like? Oh, she is exceedingly... royal. The professor chuckled and turned to look at the pair at the table. Professor, tell him to talk, Astrid pleaded. Yes, Professor, tell me to talk, Marlow said in a babyish tone. Oi, watch it, wordsmith. Where did you last see the wraith? The Professor asked, pacing slowly around the table. It seemed to be heading north for the city walls. I caught the briefest sight of it on the rooftops, but it's a fast beast. Then how did you come by all your cuts and bruises? I ran into some trouble on the way back. Acquaintances of mine. More spies? Astrid, stop it, the professor chided. 
and the young girl sulked with a mouthful of bread. "'As you know, dear lady, I am not counted in popular circles of late,' Marlowe sighed, bringing up a hand to his bruised eye. The professor turned and batted it away. "'Accusations abound that I am a blasphemer,' he growled with mock theatrics. "'You were summoned to the Privy Council for questioning. Heretical writings, wasn't it?' "'Lies. I wrote no such thing. Forgeries to make me of ill favour in court.' But the council hadn't convened. And so I am to report to them daily until they are ready for me. No doubt with some act of humiliation. Where were you going this evening? You said you had a rendezvous with a friend. I have answered several of your questions. I should like answers to one or two of my own. He fixed the professor with a warm smile. She returned it. Very well. You told the creature that neither you nor it belonged here, and it talked of a journey. Where are you from? Astrid's eyes lit up. I can answer that one. She's from the future. I am from a very distant land. My passage here was fraught with difficulties, and I encountered the wraith mid-voyage. It must have followed my ship into port. Marlowe's gaze was frozen upon her. You're lying, he said quietly. Where were you going this evening? Who were you? It said my light was sputtering. What did it mean? I... Uh... I don't know, I... And again, you fabricate. Tell me the truth. Who are you, Professor? His eyes would not leave her. She opened her mouth to speak, but a sudden crash interrupted. The window had been shattered, the pieces tumbling to the floor. Marlowe immediately sprang to his feet, dagger drawn, and pushed Astrid behind him. The Professor grabbed a poker from the fireplace and turned towards the window. The wraith in its skin suit was climbing through the frame. Ah, oh, not again! Astrid groaned. All of the rooms are taken, Fryzer. You'll have to look elsewhere, Marlowe smirked. The professor frowned at the name. Fryzer? My plans move beyond you, playwright, the wraith snarled. But I will finish my work. I won't let you, the professor said sternly. You are nothing. What plans, Sirrah? Do not mistake me. I felt your presence in my mind when we last met. What is it you want? The play. You what? Astrid leaned from behind Marlowe, but he pushed her back into hiding. What of it? Marlowe countered. Such an audience. The creature grinned its abomination of a smile and made its move. It leapt onto a table, causing Marlowe to stagger back and propel Astrid across the room to safety. The professor caught her, bundled her away, and then advanced on the wraith with the poker. Marlowe made a lunge with his dagger but the creature dodged the blow, grabbing onto his arm and pulling him clear of the ground once again. The professor dashed forwards and landed a heavy blow onto the creature's leg, knocking it down and sending Marlowe tumbling to the floor. In an instant, the wraith was on its feet again and advancing on its prey. The professor swung again, but this time the creature caught hold of the poker. Both clinging to it, they swayed to and fro until the professor lost her balance and landed on a table. The wraith stood over her, pushing the poker down nearer and nearer to her throat. No! Marlowe hollered, and launched at the creature, sinking his dagger deep into its side. A hideous shriek filled the air, and the wraith recoiled, catching Marlowe across the face with the talons of one claw and stabbing him through the heart with the talons of the other. Marlowe staggered backwards, eyes wide and mouth open. The wraith watched as he backed into a wall and sank to the floor. It was the professor's turn to yell, Kit! The wraith seemed to shudder. 
Beneath Fryzer's skin it positively glowed with silver light. As the sensation subsided, the creature turned to the professor and hissed, ready to make a second kill. Astrid leapt forward and grabbed hold of the dagger stuck into its side. She twisted it, and the creature shrieked again. It snarled in Astrid's face, but broke off its growl as she stared it down. Without blinking, she pulled the dagger from the wound, dripping with inky blood. "'Who's down there?' Mistress Bradley's voice hollered from the top of the stairs. Footsteps began to thud as she appeared. The wraith looked at the professor. "'Your time will come!' With that, it glanced back at Astrid with a snarl and leapt through the window. It disappeared into the night, just as Mistress Bradley appeared holding a candlestick. Before her lay Marlow. "'Murder! Murder in my house! Murder!' She dashed for the front door. Watchman! Where's a watchman? Ah, oh, no, 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 no! Astrid called after her. Come back! She disappeared outside, leaving the professor to kneel beside Kit. Professor, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry this is wrong. This isn't how you're meant... Meant to die? <laughs> you know, my dear lady, the things you know... Kit... He flinched in agony. Uh, the court. Tomorrow. You must go to the royal court. Why? The creature. It knows of the play. What play? Performed tomorrow for the Queen. I was... Uh, I was going to visit the players to wish them well. You must stop them. It knows. It knows about the Queen. Promise me you'll stop it. Promise me you'll stop it. The professor's tears fell onto his hand, clasped desperately around her own. I promise. Fare thee well, then, my dear lady. With a final smile, he was gone. Chapter 11 The Dawn When the orange and pink hues of dawn fell upon London, the professor was sat on a wharf on the river. She watched as the slither of sun rose above the horizon, diffusing light on a world robbed of the wonder that had enthralled her when she first arrived in it. The Thames was full of ships. Trading vessels and passenger boats lined both banks. Even in the early hours there were ships under sail starting their journey towards the coast, passing other craft sitting low in the water, their holds full of trade commodities. Footsteps padded on the wooden planks of the wharf and stopped behind her. She didn't need to look back. Morning, Astrid. Sleep well? A bit, once the watch had left. The long, inevitable round of questions had unfolded when the night watchman arrived at the tavern, escorting the hysterical Mistress Bradley. The professor had sat prone beside Marlowe's body, whilst Astrid spun them a story about her having arrived in London from Oxford, where she served the masters of the university. Content that the attack was perpetrated by a rogue now fled from the scene, Marlowe's body had been taken to one of the rooms above stairs, ready to be examined in the light of day by the Justice of the Peace. Astrid had stayed to help tidy up the broken glass, and the Professor had left, promising to return in the morning. So, what do we do now? Astrid asked, looking down at the Professor, who remained still. Kit, uh, Marlowe said that we had to stop the play being performed for the Queen. We need to get into the Royal Court. How do we do that? I don't know, Astrid. 
The professor snapped in sudden anger, then scrunched her eyes closed and lowered her head. I'm sorry, she whispered. Astrid sat down beside her. We'll put it right. We can't, Astrid. History has been changed. Christopher Marlowe died in a house in Deptford, not in an alehouse in the middle of London. It was broad daylight, not midnight, and there were witnesses. Who killed him? Originally, I mean. A man called Ingram Fraser. Marlowe called the creature Fraser. The wraith must have found him when it... when we arrived. Skinned him alive by the look of it. Astrid's stomach turned, but she swallowed hard. But Fraser didn't die, from what you know. Not in 1593, no. But there we are. History has been rewritten. And if I'd never come here... Don't start with that. You weren't to know, were you? You can't not do something because of what might happen or not happen, depending on whether you do it or not, can you? Did that make any sense to you before you said it? Sort of. Yes, I think. She smiled, and with the dawn light burning steadily brighter, the professor smiled too. So, come on then, Prof. Where do we go now? After the wraith? We've no way of tracing it. But Marlowe was convinced it was after the Queen, and this play is its way of finding her. What's it want with her, then? It killed Marlowe because it knew it was changing history. You saw it after it stabbed him. Shining like an angel it was. Or a devil, I suppose. I think the wraith feeds on disruptions to established history. When I first met it, them, I should say, they were outside of the vortex, in the non-space outside of time. Eh? They are not from our world. Well, I could have told you that. The professor looked at the horizon and the ascending sun rising above the river. We need light and water to live. The wraith need, I don't know, some form of energy, surely. Something they get from this non-space place. What could be there for them? In theory, nothing. But then, in theory, they oughtn't to exist there either. It's said they feed on chaos. So perhaps... Perhaps changing things gives them that energy. Because if they end a life before its time, what happens to all the days that they can't live? They cease to happen. Well, that can't be right. We're here today. Uh, not for us. For the person they kill. All of their days come to dust. To nothing. Non-time, just like non-space. It only got Marlowe a few hours before his time was due. What good was that? Petty pride. It tried earlier and we foiled it. But the Queen? Blimey, it's going to offer a match. Well, she doesn't die for another... The Professor glanced at Astrid's inquisitive face. Yeah, never you mind, but it's not for some time. Why didn't it go for her right away then? And why not you or me? Maybe our lives don't matter to it. Marlowe was a famous playwright. His death is, was, will be talked about for centuries and Elizabeth I lived one of the most significant lives in all of history. The bigger the life, the greater the chaos were it to be tampered with. All the things she's meant to do altered. All the consequences of her actions changed. It would be monumental. The professor clambered to her feet as the sheer enormity of the wraith's power stretched out before her. So what do we do, Prof? Find her and save her. It all centres on this play being performed at court. Why that? Why not just kill her in her bed? You really are most macabre at times, Astrid. And I don't know why it has to be the play. You're right, it does seem terribly incongruous. 
Still, if that's where it's headed, we need to get there first. Come on, to the Palace of Whitehall. The professor turned on her heel and strode away. Chapter 12 The Palace A great wagon lumbered slowly through the streets. Behind it trailed a group of men dressed in freshly laundered doublet and hose, their beards neatly trimmed and hair recently cut. The odd heckle or whistle from the crowd followed them as they made their way south towards the river. High above them, perched on a rooftop, the wraith was watching. One of the troop, a clean-shaven youth named Thomas, furrowed his brow. His eyes were fixed on the ground and his mind was clearly troubled. His lips quivered absent-mindedly as he silently mouthed some incantation to himself. Robert, a man in his thirties with a strong, angular face, quickened his step to walk alongside Thomas. "'You'll remember it,' he told him in a reassuring voice. "'I won't. I know I won't. It just won't stick,' Thomas countered in frustration. "'Your nerves are mastering your reason.' "'How could they not?' Thomas sighed. "'It is an honour, young Thomas.' "'I know it is. But if I forget it, make up something until you remember.' and one of us will come to the rescue. Unless it's Radcliffe. He'll just point and laugh. No, he won't. He did yesterday. Broke off the scene and spent five minutes laughing with the groundings about the poorly player lost for words. Ass. Robert raised an eyebrow and said sternly, He wouldn't dare do that for the Queen. He'll be as scared as you are. Of course he is. I am. But you've done it before, loads of times. Robert paused to look at Thomas. It never stops frightening you. Still, look on the bright side, young Thomas. With good Queen Bess in the audience, there'll finally be someone in the crowd wearing more makeup than you. Thomas laughed, and Robert put a friendly arm across his shoulder. Come on, we'll practice our parts. From the beginning. Yeah. As they began their recitation, the wraith watched Robert keenly. A memory torn from Marlowe's memory flickered. This was the man he needed. The Professor and Astrid were on the move as well. The Professor's gaze was fixed firmly ahead, while Astrid scanned the rooftops in fear that the wraith might launch itself at them to finish the previous night's attack. Images of the darkened tavern played across her mind. Most recurrent of all was that of the creature's eyes, fixing her in the instant before it fled. The way it looked at her, looked into her, rattled her nerves. Well, we're in the posh part of town now, aren't we? The professor chirped. Sure enough, the buildings they passed were no longer fashioned from timber and plaster. Several were neat red brick, but those rising above them were made of brilliant white stone. What a sight! Before them lay a magnificent collection of grand buildings, almost like a royal township at the heart of the City of London. Majestic halls and spires rose up above the splendid barracks, the tops of luscious green trees visible behind a stone wall in which was set a large wooden gate. How do we get in? Astrid whispered. I reckon I could clear that wall if we find a quiet spot further along. No need for that, dear heart. We'll use the front door. The one with the armed guards? And what do we say to them, do you think? We'll tell them we're here for the play, of course. But we're nobody. They don't know that. Yes, they do. We don't exactly look like favourites of her madge, do we? I don't know. Runcible always said I had a regal brow. And royal ears, 
which I always thought was a touch odd. The professor shrugged off the thought and paced confidently towards the gates. Prof! Ah, flaming hell! Astrid trotted after her. Hello, good sirs, a pleasant morning to you, the professor beamed as she raised her hat. May we pass? What's your business? grunted one of the guards. Ah, well, inventor, traveller, historian, academic, all-round enthusiast. I'm a demon at croquet, if you fancy a match. Who are you? the second guard demanded flatly. Professor Cronomier, at your service, my good man. And this... She glanced to her left, but Astrid was missing. She wasn't stood to her right, either. She sighed and reached behind her back, pulling Astrid out into the open. This is my good friend Astrid, hostess, handywoman, and discoverer of treasures and trinkets. Morning, gents. Identification, the first guard demanded. Um, Documentation, the second barked. Uh, Well, I suppose... Or clear off, they said in unison. The professor raised her chin, sure of herself. She reached inside her frock coat and pulled out a dagger. The guards reached for their swords, but quickly she held it out in both hands. I'm showing it to you, not using it on you. And what of it? the second guard asked with studied suspicion. This is the dagger of Christopher Marlowe. How did you? Astrid began, but the professor ignored her. Presented to him by Her Royal Highness for services to the Crown. Word at court is that Marlowe's dead, the first guard said with a furrowed brow. He died in the night, a most unnatural death, but he had time enough to request this gift be returned to his sovereign. The first guard reached out to take it. The professor snatched it back. It was his wish that we returned it to her. The guards looked to one another, unsure of how to proceed. You know, of course, of the suspicion and allegations surrounding Marlowe in the weeks recently past. Scary stuff, you'll agree. I'm sure there'd be a pretty reward for any loyal palace guards who helped to bring further news of the scoundrel to royal ears. The guards' eyes collectively widened and they simultaneously adopted a superior air. Well, of course we'd want to assist in any way that we could, said the first imperiously. And if our help in conveying news to the Privy Council were to be remembered, the other began, I should consider it my honour to shine the light of praise upon you, the Professor winked. Very well. The first knocked on the gate, and it opened seconds later. The guards beckoned the Professor and Astrid to step through. Much obliged, said the Professor. Cheers, boys, piped Astrid. They quickly made their way inside and the gate closed. After a moment's silence, the first guard turned to the other. Hang on. We didn't tell her our names. The second guard pondered for a second. Bugger. Inside the walls of the palace grounds, a magnificent avenue of trees stretched ahead, with neat lawns either side. The professor and Astrid looked about gleefully and slowly made their way towards a wide red brick building connecting two white towering halls. Blimey! Astrid sighed and let out a low whistle. What the hell are we doing here? Glorious. Simply glorious, the professor wondered. And to think, in little over a century, it would... What? Uh, Never mind. Here, I had Marlowe's knife. How did you... You're not the only one adept at pilfering pockets, dear heart. Before they could continue, the gates behind them opened again, 
and the pair instinctively darted behind separate trees for fear they were about to be detained. A large horse-drawn cart passed through the entrance with a group of men following on foot behind. Right, head straight for the Great Hall and we'll unload, one of the men called to the others. No skipping duties, we've only got a few hours. Will, you got the prompt book? The professor glanced at each of the men as they passed. One of them, a man in his thirties with a trimmed beard, long dark hair swept back from his forehead and a simple ring through his left ear, answered the call. Yes, Samuel, all ready. Don't want us forgetting any of your precious lines in front of Her Highness, do we? The company laughed to themselves, and Will, the man with the earring who was clutching a sheath of papers, turned and caught the professor's eye. He smiled and turned away, following the others. As the troop passed, the professor and Astrid stepped back into the road. Must be the actors. Should we try and turn them away, Prof? Prof? The professor stood stunned. Just like the portrait. Eh? Will! <laughs> she let out a giggling laugh at the sheer wonder of who she'd just seen. Will? What Will? Who's... Oh, hang on, you don't mean... Oh, you're having me on, said Astrid, looking back at the cart. It really was, the professor smiled, and then she realised. Oh, no. What? You think it wasn't him? Make your mind up. Oh, no, no, it was definitely him. Which explains everything. Does it? How? Would it kill you to explain yourself the first time around? We wondered why the race didn't go straight for Queen Elizabeth. Why it was waiting for the performance. And? It knew it was worth the wait. It's not just looking for the Queen of England. It's going to try and kill William Shakespeare as well. Chapter 13 The Intruder The Great Hall was being readied for the performance. A raised stage had been assembled at one end, with long banqueting tables lined up perpendicular to the platform. At the rear of the hall, elevated above the others, was the Queen's table. The household staff were busy polishing, sweeping and dusting every surface in sight, whilst workmen made the final adjustments to the timbers of the stage. Shakespeare's troupe had set up in a modest room behind the stage, which was now filled with their vast array of costumes. Thomas was hastily unpacking a large chest containing the props needed for the performance. He fumbled with a variety of scrolls and daggers, scooped them up in his arms and turned to place them on a table, only for one of the knives to slip and clatter to the floor. He jumped to avoid it hitting his toes, and the rest of the props tumbled from his grasp. "'Idiot boy!' yelled Charles, another senior member of the acting troupe who was busy laying out his costume nearby. "'Sorry, sorry!' Thomas whimpered, collecting up the props. Robert saw him, and knelt to help him with the task. "'Let him pick them up, Arlington!' Charles grumbled. "'Serves the daft whelp right!' "'Go back to dusting your codpiece, Ratcliffe,' Robert warned. He finished placing the scrolls on the table, then stood with Thomas. No harm done. Now, run and check the carts empty, then come back for the final rehearsal. Yes, sir, Thomas replied quietly, and retreated from the room. No hope for that one, sneered Charles. <laughs> you said much the same about me when I joined. And I stand by it. Caution yourself, Ratcliffe, Robert smiled, placing a crown from the prop table on his head. That's the King of England you're talking to. It's you who ought to be careful. If our Royal Highness thinks you're enjoying the part too much, she'll have your head. The sound of tumbling crates thundered into the room. 
Both men looked up and Charles shook his head. No hope. Not a hope in the world. Thomas, Robert called. Is all well? There came no reply. Robert set the crown back on the table and left the room, following the noise. The Professor and Astrid had watched as the cart was unloaded at rear entrance to the Great Hall. The actors had been efficient in their work and in no time it was empty. From behind the trunk of a chestnut tree they watched as the youngest of the troop, no more than sixteen, left the hall and checked the cart, before signalling to the horseman that he was clear to move it away. "'No sign of the wraith,' whispered Astrid. I haven't seen Shakespeare in a while either,' muttered the Professor in a low voice. "'If I can be of service, I should be delighted to attend you.' They turned simultaneously. Sat beneath another tree some metres away sat William Shakespeare, his head tilted towards the midday sun. "'You're?' the Professor began, but lost the thread of her thought almost immediately. She blinked hard and began again. "'You're Shakespeare!' "'I'm a Shakespeare, certainly.' he said pleasantly, then turned to look at her. His brow raised and the gentle smile that had greeted them soon widened. "'Bless me, fair lady! How pleasant to lay eyes on you again!' He got to his feet and walked slowly over to her. She took a step forward herself. Astrid sighed. Oh, "'Not another one!' "'Good morrow to thee, Master Shakespeare,' the professor announced with a bow of her head. "'My name is at ease on your lips, but my own are at a loss for yours.' "'You what?' Astrid frowned. "'I'm Professor Cronomier, Master Shakespeare.' "'Call me Will.' "'I will, Will.' "'Are you blushing?' Astrid said, peering to look at the Professor's face. "'This is my friend, Astrid.' "'Are you to attend tonight's festivities, dear ladies?' asked Will. "'We certainly hope to be, yes. We were just watching your colleague setting up.' She turned to indicate the makeshift stage door. The front of her coat caught the wind, revealing Marlowe's dagger tucked into her belt. Will's brow furrowed. That knife about your person. It's familiar. The professor watched as he realised where he had seen it before. I'm sorry, Will. I really am. Robert followed the sound of the disturbance along the passageway. He peered into the various rooms off to each side, but there was no sign of Thomas nor the upturned crates. He soon found himself at the exterior door. Looking out onto the spacious lawns lined with trees, he saw Will conversing with the woman of the court and her maid. The company's cart had gone, with no luggage left behind. Turning back inside, he called up the passageway. Thomas? Have you lost your way? A low, heavy scraping sounded from behind a nearby door. Opening it, he found a narrow staircase leading down to the cellar. It turned a corner out of sight, obscuring whatever lay below but for the flickering light of a lantern somewhere within. Thomas? Is that you? He placed a hand on the wall to steady himself, and descended the first few steep steps. Again came the sound of something scraping across the flagstones. He stopped just shy of the corner step, and peered around to see who was making the noise. A long, low, rattling breath filled the air. Who goes there? Arlington, a voice rasped. Robert turned the corner, peering into the dark cellar. The firelight from the torch licked the walls and he could see a man stood some distance away down the long, cool chamber cluttered with toppled wooden boxes. Might I be of assistance? Yes, it replied. Assistance. 
a long, impossibly lean arm extended from the man's silhouette. At its end were a set of jagged talons, flexing in the torchlight. Chapter 14. The Plan In the dappled shade beneath the trees of the court lawns, the Professor and Astrid finished their tale of the previous night. A spy in the court, Will contemplated. We don't know his identity, but we know he means to use the performance as a way of getting to both you and the Queen. The Professor had opted not to relate a story of skin-stealing creatures from outside the realm of time, but rather a warning of espionage determined to cause civil unrest. An irresistible thought struck her. Essentially, the play's the scheme wherein they'll catch the playwright and the Queen. She smiled at Will and then remembered. Oh yes, that's right, you've not written that one yet. What one? It doesn't matter. We must find the intruder before they can strike. But we know not the shape or shade of their visage. No clue what they look like either, Astrid said shortly. You need to get away from here, Will. It's not safe. I cannot abandon my company. We play at royal command. If the right spy doesn't get him, then her will have his head for scarpering. Astrid reasoned to the professor, whose brow had furrowed. You won't change your mind? Never, good lady. Very well. Go back to the others and continue preparations. But if there's the slightest suggestion of anyone acting out of character, you must run. <laughs> out of character! Brilliant! laughed Astrid. Will and the professor did not join her. Well, because they're actors. Playing characters. Suit yourselves. Surely we must capture the villain and deliver him to the justice. No, the professor said firmly. Leave that to us. Just get yourself away and head for here. She took the map from her pocket, unfolded it and pointed to a spot near the river. Why there? That's where I shall be headed this afternoon. What? Astrid exclaimed. I need to fetch something which I very much hope will help us deal with the spy. Either you'll find me there or I'll catch you on the way back. And what do I do? asked Astrid. I'll explain in a moment. Will, the best of luck to you. Remember, don't draw attention to yourself and if anything untoward should occur... Run for the hills. I will, good lady. Here, said the professor, taking Marlowe's dagger from her belt and handing it to him. Will regarded it sadly. Thank you. Away to rehearsals with you. I shall see you soon. He turned and began to head for the entrance. Oh, wait, Will? Yes? Which play are you performing tonight? One of my own. The Tragedy of Richard Third. I'm to play Clarence. Oh, I love that one. Save me a seat and a programme. He gave a bow, then turned and walked away. Yeah, why can't I come with you? Astrid demanded. He thinks he's looking for a human being. You know better. Chances are the wraith will ditch Fryzer's skin so as not to draw attention to itself. It's much too worn at the edges. See if you can find who it's masquerading as now. You'll easily pass for a servant of the court. See if you can get to the wraith before it can get to Will and Queen Elizabeth. And what do I do if I find it? Just keep an eye on it, and if it looks to strike, give it a piece of your mind. I aim to return before that becomes necessary. And where are you going, anyhow? If we get out of this alive, I promise I'll show you. Will had made his way to the room behind the stage, where his fellow actors were busying themselves. Cutting it fine, Will, mocked Charles. You may be the scribbler, but that doesn't excuse your rehearsals. My dear Buckingham, forgive my tardiness. 
Thomas ran in, looking anxiously around the room. "'What is it, Thomas?' asked Will as he checked through his costume. "'It's Robert. I can't find him anywhere.' "'I thought he came looking for you,' Charles grunted. Thomas ignored him and looked back at Will. "'He's not anywhere. I've looked all over.' The other actors sensed a problem brewing. They shared concerned glances and then collectively turned to Will. "'I'm sure he'll appear when the fates call for him. In the interim, we can endure his absence.' "'Rehearsed without him?' "'To put it in base terms, Charles, yes. "'But he's playing the main role. "'As I recall from last night's practice, "'Robert had conned his part rather well. "'Such an accolade could not be afforded to you. "'So I suggest we rehearse again regardless.' "'Charles was silenced. "'Will turned back to Thomas and winked at him. "'He'll turn up. "'Come now, be swift to readiness.' "'Thomas dashed away to prepare himself.' and Will was left to take in his fellow performers one at a time, searching for a spy. The two guards from the gate had been relieved of their post, and were headed for the barracks. As they turned a corner, they saw a man with a strong, angular face standing alone in the middle of the yard. He was stock still, looking at the sky. "'Who's that fella? asked the first guard. "'Yeah, it's one of them thesps,' the second replied. "'He was behind the cart.' You all right there? The first guard called to the actor. There was no response. He nudged his colleague to try. Sarah? Slowly the man turned. You're with the actors, aren't you? Yes, he replied slowly. Which one are you then? Arlington, the man replied, almost unsure of his response. Robert Arlington. No, I mean, which one are you in the play? I am the king. Oh, the villain himself. Yes, I am a villain. The two guards chuckled, but something in the man's tone unnerved them both. He took a step towards them and smiled. The professor had left the Palace of Whitehall and was once again heading east. It was little over a day since she'd arrived in Tudor London and begun the most extraordinary expedition of her career. Little over a day since she'd realised the wraith had followed her here. Little over a day since she'd realised she had no idea how to stop it. But a lot had happened in a day. A lot had changed. And now she had a plan. Astrid stomped around the ornately tendered yards of the court, huffing at the menial task of searching for the wraith. The frustration and boredom pulsed through her, propelling her from window to window and peering inside for clues. There had been none. She looked around at the magisterial buildings that made up the court, a long way from Bedlam, the cart horse, and the cold, wet passages and alleyways of London. Long though the night of Marlowe's death had been, it held no comparison to the winter evenings she'd spent out in the cold. She had lived a solitary life, the years of it she could remember, that is. But now, in the Professor, she'd found a friend. The Professor stood at the bank of the river. Across the water was the horizon that had greeted her the previous afternoon. She cast her eye over each building lining the river and then turned her back on them. She grabbed the heavy cloth covering her time machine and pulled it to the ground. The familiar frame of brass, copper, marble and glass gleamed in the afternoon sun. Casting the cloth aside, she took a breath and stepped onto the marble podium. 
she slowly raised a hand and grasped a lever on one of the control panels. She pulled it slowly back, and the serum in the glass bottles and flasks began to bubble. The familiar hum of the time engine rose to her ears, and steam seeped from beneath the marble platform. As the copper blades gathered speed, she reached up and grabbed the hourglass in its metal frame. Her eyes misted over. I'm sorry. I really am. With a reluctant push, she set the hourglass in motion. Chapter 15 The Play The banquet in the Great Hall was nearing its end. Astrid trudged through the raucous mass of nobility, guffawing and quaffing at each of the long tables, and refilled their glasses from a silver decanter. Occasionally the more red-faced lords would bark some lewd comment at her, but she didn't hear them. She scanned the room continually for any sign of the wraith. There were all manner of misshapen and undesirable men in the room, but none she would assume masked a demon from another world. Hours had passed since the professor had left for the riverbank. Hours of searching with no sign of the wraith, or the one person whom Astrid had faith could stop it. Behind the stage, the actors were beginning to panic. There was still no sign of Robert. Under Will's instruction, they had readied themselves for the performance, dressing themselves in a splendid array of costumes. In one corner of the room, Thomas was seated before Mary, the wardrobe mistress, who was applying a heavy layer of makeup to the boy's face, finishing with a set of red lips. What can we do, Will? he called across the room. Stop shifting about or I'll have to start again, Mary chided. Will, he's still missing. He will come back. Have faith, young Thomas, Will calmly replied, dabbing a wisp of red powder to his cheeks. She'll hang us. Hang the lot of us, Charles murmured from his corner of the room. <laughs> She'll need a bloody big scaffold for you, Mary smirked. The door of the room burst open, and Robert stepped across the threshold. Robert! Thomas beamed and made to stand, only for Mary to swat him across the back of the head. I warned you! She dabbed the last of the powder on him. Now, get your frock on. Where were you? The boy asked as Mary began helping him into a huge ornate dress. I went for a walk, Robert grunted, still in the doorway. All through the rehearsal? Where did you walk to? Portsmouth, barked Charles. Robert advanced on him with a dark determination that made him shrink back. Will intervened. We're glad to have your company, Robert. Now quickly, into costume. Have you got the hump, Mary? Hump? Robert frowned. For your back, offered Thomas. Robert looked from him to Will, then flexed his shoulders. His back arched, and a hump swelled behind his shoulder, forcing him to stoop. The other actors backed away in horror, save Will who looked on astonished. The curtain leading to the stage was pulled back and one of the stewards of the house leaned in. She's on her way. To the stage. The troop quickly followed orders to get away from their colleague, Charles leading the way and Thomas hesitantly following on behind. Will remained with Robert, perturbed but not wanting to betray his suspicions. Will, Robert said in a low voice. Is all well with you, Robert? You appear... changed. Before Robert could answer, Thomas dashed back in. I forgot me wig! He grabbed an elaborate hairpiece from one of the tables and dashed back for the stage. Come on, Will! Will turned to Robert. 
Put on your costume. I'll see to matters out there. Astrid filled another glass, emptying her decanter, then scanned the room for the umpteenth time. Two trumpets sounded a blasting herald, and the room fell silent. Those seated at the tables rose to their feet and turned to the raised table at the top of the room. The main doors opened and guards marched into the room. The Queen of England followed them. Astrid was alarmed at the sight of the monarch. She had seen all manner of likenesses, but never the genuine article. She was not a tall woman, and was no doubt extremely slender beneath her voluminous royal gown. She wore a high, stiff collar, and so many jewels Astrid wondered how she kept her head from drooping. Her skin was caked in thick white makeup, her eyebrows and lips painted on its surface. She wore a wig of vibrant red hair beneath her crown. Elizabeth would have struck Astrid as being a most fragile painted woman, were it not for her eyes. They beamed, sharp and determined, inspecting the entire hall as she took her place at the table. Nodding to the assembled crowd, she sat down and her subjects followed. A silence which seemed to last an hour followed. Proceed, she commanded in a small but powerful voice. The crowd of heads turned to the stage. Astrid had not noticed the actors enter the room and smiled as she saw Will and his colleagues in their finery. The playwright stepped forward. Your Royal Majesty, we offer for your consideration a play of my own composition. We shall see it at once, Master Shakespeare. Her voice was firm, but not lacking in warmth. Will bowed. Of course, we present the tragedy of King Richard III. A great murmur rippled across the long tables. Richard's downfall had paved the way for Elizabeth's family to reign. His inevitable demise at the end of the play was not likely to be mourned. The actors bowed and retreated back behind the stage as Astrid scanned each of their faces and moved to the side of the room. A small collection of musicians played a fanfare to begin the story, and then Robert, in a long black wig and clasping onto a crutch, shuffled onto the stage to boos and hisses from the audience. Astrid could not contain her gasp as she recognised the stretched skin and misshapen form of the wraith's new host. She wanted to turn and scream at the crowds to run, to warn the Queen that her life was in danger. But what would follow? The creature was about to attack, and the one person Astrid trusted to stop it had gone. She had promised to return, and she had lied. Tears rose in Astrid's eyes as the wraith began to speak. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York. Astrid listened, frozen to the spot, as the wraith recited Will's lines in a rasping staccato. The words were enough to seize her bones in an icy grasp, but as the speech continued, the wraith looked about the room and fixed her with a stare. Still, it spoke. I, that am curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world. Astrid held the creature's gaze until it finally moved away and addressed another group of spectators. As soon as it did, she reached forward and grabbed a knife from the table beside her. She held it away from view, but gripped it tightly in fear. She closed her eyes and tried to steady her breathing. I am determined to prove a villain, 
and hate the idle pleasure of these days. Plots I have laid, inductions dangerous. In and out, in and out, in and out. She was ready. Dive thoughts down to my soul. Here Clarence comes. Astrid opened her eyes in time to see Will walk out onto the stage, flanked by two other actors dressed as guards. The wraith smiled. Brother, good day. Dropping the crutch, the wraith straightened up and grabbed Will by the throat. The actors looked around in alarm, but the audience simply continued watching, absent-mindedly eating scraps from the feast. Robert, Will gasped, what mean you by this? The wraith merely snarled and threw him down from the stage, crashing to the floor between the tables. Were it not for Will's next cry, the crowd might have assumed the stunt to be part of the action. Your Majesty, flee! This man's a spy! Elizabeth rose immediately, but the guards either side of her drew their swords and pointed them at her throat. Astrid recognised them now, the guards who had let her and the professor through the gates. Their eyes had the same misty stare that the thugs who'd accompanied Fryzer had been afflicted with. They were the wraith's servants. Astrid leapt onto a table. Run, you fools! Get out of here! The crowd hesitated, some slowly rising from their seats. The rest of the actors had appeared at the back of the stage, having heard the commotion. Run! she screamed. A stampede flowed out of the hall, echoing frantic yells and cries for help. The actors fled back behind the stage, and soon only the wraith, Will, Astrid, the Queen and the guards remained. Will made to crawl away from the stage, but the wraith leapt down like a wild animal and pulled him to his feet. Elizabeth looked on defiantly. I have outlasted many threats to my life, Sirrah. By whose orders do you act? No orders. Alone, agent? Foolish. Not alone. My brothers will follow when I have ripped this world apart for them to feast upon. Astrid! Where is the professor? Will gasped, the wraith holding his throat tightly in its grasp. I, 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 I don't know, Astrid stammered. Oh, that one's easy, a familiar voice rang from the stage. She is behind you. Professor! Professor Chronomies stood centre stage holding the hourglass mechanism from her ship. A tangle of wires wrapped around her arms and linked to a series of glass bottles and flasks hung from her coat. Behind her stood Thomas, still in his dress and makeup, but with his own wavy blonde hair released from the confines of his wig. He held a wooden box in his arms, which was connected to the professor's device by another jumble of wires. On top of the box was a lever. What on earth? Astrid began, salvaged from the machine that brought me here. Good evening, your majesty. And to you, my subject, Elizabeth replied coolly. Am I to assume you mean to rid me of this schemer? I'll give it a go, certainly. Your meddling is misguided, snarled the wraith. Time is already changed. I failed once, and I thank you for it. Truly, I do. Our failures inspire us. I have seen the darkness you mean to spread, and I will stake my life on preventing it. Empty words. Do you think? Then allow my actions to speak more loudly to you. 
Thomas, now. Thomas threw the lever on the box he was carrying. A metallic hum swelled to fill the air. Sparks flew out of the box and zapped along the wires around the professor. The fluid in the glass bottle bubbled and frothed. What is this trickery? The wraith growled above the mounting noise, pulling Will close to him. Astrid! The professor called over the noise. On it, prof! Astrid cried and leapt at the wraith, sinking her knife deep into its arm. It screeched, knocked Astrid off her feet and let go of Will, who fell then made to crawl away. With a sickening tear, the skin of Robert's arm shredded and the wraith's clawed arms swung at Will, but he was ready for it. He pulled Marlowe's dagger from his belt and swiped at the creature, catching its talons so that it shrieked again and recoiled. Get clear! the professor shouted as she set the hourglass spinning into motion. Static energy snapped and sparked all over the frame. A shockwave blasted the room, knocking over ornaments and extinguishing every candle. The bolts of energy fizzed and crackled, filling the hall with bursts of icy blue light. The wraith will come for you, Professor! The creature screamed above the noise. You and the little lost child! I'll be waiting, the Professor replied, and then thrust the hourglass out at arm's length. An eruption of electricity ripped from the glass, thundered across the chamber and hit the wraith in the chest. Robert's skin burst into pieces, and the skeletal creature within disappeared in an explosion of silvery light, sending everyone tumbling to the floor. Chapter 16 The Departure Moonlight fell through the high windows to bathe the great hall. Will ran up to the royal table and helped the queen to her feet whilst Astrid and Thomas did the same for the professor. What did you do? Astrid asked her. Oh, that's a long explanation full of fiddly equations. In short, I think I zapped it back to where it came from, with the assistance of Thomas here, of course. What is this strange device? he puzzled. Parts of my, uh, transport. I met the creature on the way here and discovered it had something of an aversion to the electrostatic power generated by the crystallization of chronofluid, which I believe must have... She scanned a room of blank faces. Sent it packing. You are some form of alchemist, it seems, the Queen observed. The Professor immediately bowed. In a manner of speaking, Your Majesty, yes. And the assassin? Uh, no idea, ma'am. A spy, perchance, from some rival power? More than likely. And its arm, which resembled a demon's claw. Uh, some sort of sophisticated... Gauntlet? Elizabeth's suspicious stare bore into the professor's skull. Very well, the professor exhaled deeply. Master Shakespeare, you will accompany me in search of my cowardly protectors. As for these two, she indicated the mesmerized guards now laid unconscious at her feet, we must have them conveyed to the tower. Actually, ma'am, I believe they may have been under some sort of influence. They weren't... The professor was cut off by one of Elizabeth's eyebrows rising threateningly at the interjection. We shall see. I thank you for your assistance, though I suspect these events may prove too fanciful for public debate. She paused with a wry smile. Tales of travellers and demons from beyond our realm of understanding are like to draw altogether too much suspicion. How did you... Astrid began 
but the professor placed a hand over her mouth. I fancy they would, ma'am. Master Shakespeare, I suggest you intimate to those in attendance tonight that this interlude was merely part of your performance. Yes, ma'am. Let us depart to reassure them. Of course. He began to lead her away, but she turned back to the professor. Your name, good lady? Professor Cronomier, ma'am. I should hope, Professor, that no more demons might trouble my kingdom. I shall protect it, ma'am. You have my word. Elizabeth smiled, nodded, and left the room. The bright morning sun spread across the Thames. The rattling of carts and the chatter of the crowd on the streets was punctuated by hammering and rattling. At the bank of the river, the Professor was busy reassembling her machine. I really am sorry, my dear thing, she soothed tightening various fastenings holding the hourglass in place. I know it must have hurt, but it was the only way to stop it. I just hope I've not done you any permanent damage. What the hell? came a disbelieving voice behind her. She turned to find Astrid staring open-mouthed at the machine. Ah, Astrid, I thought you were at the cart horse. Is this it? It is, ain't it? That's what brought you here. There was nothing left to hide. Yes, Astrid, this is my, um... The words still stirred butterflies in her stomach. This is my time machine. Blimey, how does it work? Best not to ask, dear heart. I'm not sure it still does after having to pull the poor thing apart last night. And if it's all fixed, then I shall be on my way. Holla, my lady, called Will as he and Thomas emerged from the passageway leading from the busy street. What is that? Thomas gasped in wonder at the sight of the machine. Oh, just a prop of mine. I dabble in theatrics myself. You don't look half bad without all that paint on your face, Astrid chirped, nudging Thomas in the ribs. He laughed and looked at the floor. How are things at court? the professor asked as she began putting her tools away in the compartment beneath the marble platform. It appears those in attendance accepted the ruse of the creature being part of the play. The players took rather more convincing, of course, but the promise of patronage soon put pay to that. We're performing again tonight, Thomas smiled. The actual play this time. Well, break a leg, the professor grinned, closing the compartment and getting to her feet. I should hope not, frowned Thomas. Indeed, Will concurred. Once tonight is through, we've all manner of new parts for young Thomas here to con. More women and spear bearers, the young actor said glumly. I think you've earned better than that. The professor grinned. I quite agree, Will replied, and Thomas's eyes widened. Really? Well done, Tom. Out of a dress and into tights. Astrid laughed and hugged him. You must join us for the performance tonight, said Will. I'm certain it will prove rather less eventful, though hopefully just as dramatic. I would love to, Will, truly, the professor replied. But I really must check my, uh, prop is still fully functional and that task requires me to return home. Need a hand? asked Astrid, moving to her side. I I don't think that would be wise. Ah, oh, come off it. I can keep you company. Journey should be undertaken in company, good lady, said Will. Astrid, you'll recall what I told you about changing things. Nobody's going to miss me, are they? I ain't in any history book. What do you mean? Thomas puzzled. The professor looked into Astrid's dark eyes. 
and recalled what the wraith had said before being sent back to the vortex. The little lost child. Something swirled in her stomach. An instinct. Very well. Yes! See you, chaps! Astrid cried, skipping up to stand on the marble platform. Goodbye, Thomas, said the professor, shaking his hand. Thank you with all of my heart for your help. And Will. She paused, uncertain of what to say. He preempted her. A gift for your departure, my lady, he said, presenting Marlowe's dagger to her, just as she had to him the day before. She took the present and smiled sadly. Thank you. I hope we shall have cause to meet again. The professor nodded and then dashed to the machine. A gift of my own. She handed the knife to Astrid and picked up the vibrant orange flower she had revived in the vortex. She handed the plant to Will. To remember me by. Quite beautiful. Her or the daisy? Astrid smirked. Will chuckled. You said that you must be on your way, but I see no horse, he observed, looking around the river bank. Let me show you, the professor grinned, a sense of mischief overcoming her. The chance to stun one of the greatest minds in history was too enticing. She ascended the marble platform beside Astrid and began pulling levers. The colour serum in the glass bottles started to bubble. Steam hissed from the depths of the machine. The ethereal hum rose to fill the air and the copper blades began to turn. The professor looked up at Thomas and Will. There are more things in heaven and earth, Will. Live well. She reached up, pushed the hourglass into motion, turned all manner of dials and threw one final lever. In a flash of silvery light, the professor and Astrid were gone. What in the world? Thomas laughed in wonder. He ran up to the space where the machine had been standing and spun around in the dying whirlpool of air it had left behind. Such magic! Will looked up to the clear blue sky. More things indeed. Fare thee well, sweet lady. Epilogue The machine hurtled through the vortex, a cool wind swirling about the brass frame and carrying Astrid's excited whoops and screams along the shimmering silver tunnel. This is incredible! she yelled, spinning on the spot to take in the magnificent cascade of light. The professor tended to the controls, a warm smile on her face at the giddy excitement of her fellow traveller. Now and then she would cast a cautious glance into the vortex, looking for the shadows that had menaced her on her maiden voyage. Ah, oh, imagine if we could have shown Marlow this, Astrid sighed. Imagine, the professor replied quietly, looking out into the vortex walls. Perhaps he was out there, she thought, lost in time with the precious hours the wraith had stolen from him. When she returned home, the sorrowful task of seeing how history had recorded his usurped demise awaited her. "'What's this place made of?' Astrid asked, reaching her hand out to the vortex walls. "'Ah, no touching.' "'Why not?' the professor's eyes sparkled with an idea. "'I'll show you.' She picked up the small log resting on the instrument panel and slowly held it out into the void. Astrid watched, open-mouthed, as the bark stripped away and shavings of wood flaked off and drifted into nothing. The log grew thinner and thinner until it had returned to the form of a pencil. The professor pulled it away from the void and looked at it contentedly. Ta-da! Astrid looked at her blankly. What is it? 
Oh, yes, that's right, said the professor. Hasn't been invented yet. Not for another two centuries. Never mind. So where are we going? Back to where you're from? That's the plan. A high-pitched whistle caused them both to turn. One of the flasks of bubbling liquid had reached a feverish boil, and steam shot from the top of it. Ah, right, that's not supposed to happen. What is it? Trouble, Astrid. Quite a lot of trouble. Cracks appeared in the glass, and the professor leapt to the controls, pulling levers and turning dials frantically to counteract the malfunction. Despite her efforts, the flask shattered and the machine swayed. The copper blades sped up and the other flasks bubbled more excitedly. The professor continued to struggle with the controls. What are you doing? Emergency landing. Where? Not a clue. Nor when, come to think of it. Hold on tight, dear heart, we're on our way. Eyes dancing with excitement, the professor threw a lever and the static electricity surrounding the spinning hourglass erupted once again. With a rush of light, the machine was gone. The Chronicles of Professor Chronomio, an Unbound Theatre production. The Tudor Assassin was written by Dario Knight. It was performed by Erica Sanderson, with music by Kevin MacLeod. <laughs>